Uh, I grew up Baptist, and for me as a kid growing up Baptist, that meant hymns, all kinds of hymns, really good hymns like, There's a church in the wildwood. Yes, that's right. Some of you remember those, okay? It also meant the King James Bible, okay? And for the longest time as a kid, I thought that in order to talk to God, you had to talk like that because everybody did. Our Father, we thank thee for thy bounty. And I always wondered, why are we thanking God for paper towels? I just didn't understand. (laughs) I don't get it, okay? And growing up Baptist, the only time I remember having fun during the scope of a a church year was vacation Bible school. It was the one time of the year where as a kid you got to have fun because everybody kind of let their hair down and you got to play games and color and paint and all kinds of cool stuff in church that normally you couldn't do uh, because you were doing the Sunday school quarterly. Um, In fact, uh, Sunday school was separate from the worship service. When I was a kid growing up Baptist, you had to sit in grown-up church and be quiet. (gasps) It's like almost impossible today, right? Okay. And if you weren't quiet, if you were too fidgety, if you were doing what I would always do, which is pester my little brother, you would get the pinch of death on your knee. And, and the more you were misbehaving, the louder you were becoming, the harder the pinch of death would be to get you to be quiet. And then, of course, when you're pinched that hard, what do you do as a kid? Ow! <laughs> All right? And the other thing about my family, my whole extended family were um, what I call leg j- jigglers. When we sit down, our, you know, the leg is just always moving. And so Grandma Vanderpool hated this. When it was Easter Sunday and you, she had a pew of Vanderpools, the whole <laughs> pew was shaking and she could only pinch the people on either side. <laughs> it was terrible. Now, I... I actually found God, despite all of those things. I found God in that church. Now, when I went to high school, we changed our flavor of Baptist, and we went to independent fundamental Baptist flavoring for a while. And, and that was a little different. That was more like, God loves you, but God hates sin. You're sinning, aren't you? You know, if you don't stop sinning, you might end up in hell. Let's pray. Please come back next week. And <laughs> the thing about it is it wasn't very inspiring. It was scary, but it wasn't very inspiring. And the, the thing is, today, because of those experiences, and sometimes in spite of those experiences, I'm a Jesus follower today. I actually believe in God. I actually love God and love people. And it's this mix of church and family in my life. And I'm not alone. See, my story is really not all that different from your story. You're here in a church because of this odd mix of church and family in your experience growing up. Uh, and, and for some of you, it was a positive experience. For some of you, your mom, your dad, your grandparents, they had a quiet faith, but they loved you and they were proud of you and you carried that with you. And for you, there is no other way to do family. There is no other way to think about God as a father other than a loving, loving father. Um, and then for some of you, you had positive church experiences. I mean, you remember the youth pastor who believed in you as a teenager and taught you how to study the Bible. Why wouldn't you be in church today? But then there's others, and, and the experiences weren't positive, were they? I mean, your parents said they believed in God, and they went to church, but, man, when at home, they were mean. And, I mean, you would talk about it with your friends. I mean, I can't believe Dad's the treasurer. Hypocrite. 
Okay? And you carry that with you into your adulthood. And uh, because your parents, there was inconsistency that you saw in their life. Uh, For some of you, it was a negative experience in church. Um, You had a pastor that you really loved. And the committee ran him out, fired him, sent him him packing with his bags. And all of a sudden, the one guy that understood you and your set of circumstances was gone. And then they brought in this old person to come in. Open your Bibles to Leviticus. And, you know, after that, it was just, you gave up, okay? You gave up on church. A lot of us, a lot of us wandered off from God and wandered off from church because of the negative mix of church and family experiences that we have in our background. And the thing about it is, if you're here today and you're 14 or 16 years old, I know that you're still sorting things out. I get it. I'm not too old that I don't remember what it was like, okay? So I know you're trying to figure out what's really real and and how things really work and whether or not what your mom and dad is saying is true or not true. And you've got a list. I know you've got a list. I like this. I don't like that. When I'm a parent, I am never doing that. Uh Uh-uh, forget it, baby. That is so wrong. That should be outlawed in all 50 states, okay? And I know you've got this list. I do. But, uh, Where you find yourself at age 30 or 40 has a lot to do with what you're receiving right now from church and family. And so I want to talk about church and family over the next several weeks. Um, When I was little, like I like I talked about as a Baptist, when I was little, we went uh, as a kid, we did church together as a family. But somewhere in the 1980s, churches developed all this really cool programming for kids and for youth, we had youth groups and youth trips and, and it, vacation Bible school happened like not just during vacation Bible school, but every week was really cool. And now there's churches that do like Nickelodeon splat and you can have like double dare and all this other stuff. And it's all for Jesus. And it's really cool. The problem is here it is in 2010. And despite all of that wonderful programming, all of the dollars, millions of dollars that we spend on it, we're only keeping two out of every 10 of our kids in church. We're only keeping 20% of them. In fact, we've talked about this at the beginning of the calendar year. Church attendance, is it increasing or decreasing in America? Decreasing. Church attendance is on a steep decline in the United States, 19% and shrinking of the, of the population. Church attendance is actually in decline. And okay, well, Right? Forget church. Well, if church isn't working, thank God we have family. Well, how are things on the family front? <laughs> yeah, one out of every two marriages ends up in divorce. In this country every year, this breaks my heart, one million children are abused every year in our country, in this country. One out of every five women is on the receiving end of some form of violence, domestic violence, every year. In this country, family isn't faring any better than church. And so I believe we're at this critical crossroads. We're at a critical defining moment in the United States when the church is losing its influence and when the home is losing its heart. Some people, some people are suggesting, well, you know what? We should just give up on church. You know, what I do in my family, my family thing, that is a church. And when I, I, I just need another family, we'll be the church in our home. Forget organized church. Forget church in buildings. Forget all the big extra stuff. We don't need that stuff. And then there are other people, and they say, well, pfft, man, families, you can't count on families and parents. 
They're so dysfunctional, they'll never recover. Let's get them in the building three, four times a week. Resource it up. We'll do what parents can't or won't. Both of those approaches, I think, are wrong. It's not either or. It really is both and. The question that we face, I think, in the year 2010 is, how are we going to pass on a vibrant faith to the next generation? If the church is losing its influence, if home is losing its heart, how are we going to pass on a faith to the people coming up behind us so that they know they can trust God with their hearts? How are we going to do that? This question isn't new. The Puritans faced it in New England. How are we going to pass on this faith to the people coming up behind us? The, the people of the Reformation area in the 1500s faced this question. The parents and churches of the first and second century faced this question. And the nation of Israel faced this question as they were about to enter the promised land. And that's where I want to take us this morning in the biblical text. If you brought a Bible, open it to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is an interesting book because it kind of uh, ends up the Torah, uh, but, it, but it also, um, it's Moses' farewell sermons, okay? What's happening in, 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 this, in this book, what's happening is that uh, they've gotten out of Egypt, the Israelites have gotten out of Egypt, they made some mistakes, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you've lived it. <laughs> Finally, finally, they're at the river and they're about to cross into the land that God promised them. Only a rumor starts circulating that Moses isn't going to cross the river with them. He's not coming. He's been their leader for 40 years. He's the one that God used to break the back of Pharaoh to get him out of all of this stuff. Everybody there at the river except a handful of people Everybody, they grew up in the wilderness. They don't remember what it was like in Egypt. They never saw God's mighty acts. These are just stories that they've heard. All they know is manna from heaven. Day after day, that's it. That's all they know. And there they are at the river. And Moses feels the weight of that defining moment. And he knows things are about to change. You're about to go into a land of milk and honey, a land of plenty. And you're going to be tempted to get distracted you're going to forget that you can count on God. And so these, these messages, these sermons that he gives are very passionate messages. Um, chapters 4 and 5 that start off this speech are what you would expect from the Old Testament. It's laws, decrees, and commands. And you have to say it in that deep, booming voice. Laws, decrees, and commands. Oh, it's awesome. If only I could talk that way all the time. <laughs> Chapter 6 is different. Chapter 6 starts something totally new. Chapter 6 is a whole new idea that you don't have, that you don't see in the Old Testament until now. These are all the commands, laws, and regulations that the Lord your God told me to teach you, verse 1. So you may obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. Okay, yep, heard that. And so you and your children and grandchildren might fear the Lord your God as long as you live. In other words, this isn't just about you. This is about the people who are coming up behind you. You need to be thinking about them, not just yourself. Then he goes on. 
Listen closely, Israel, to everything I say. Be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And in that, that land of uh, milk and honey is a way of saying land of plenty. Prosperity lies ahead. Watch out. All right? And then, then, then it gets into the kicker, and that's verse 4 and following. Hear, O Israel, uh, in the Hebrew... Shema Israel. You can say that if you want. You can impress your neighbors. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. The, the Jews to this day call it the Shema because that's the first word in Hebrew. Shema Israel. All right. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. What Moses is saying here, and this phrase could be translated a number of different ways, and one of the ways it could be translated is this. The Lord is our God. Moses is saying, hey, God's it. God's our God. Not any of these other people, not Baal, not Astropoles, none of this other stuff. God's our God. Him. And then the kicker, verse 5. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. In verse 6, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands I'm giving you today. Love God with everything you've got and don't hold back. Interestingly, this is weird stuff for the Old Testament. I mean, up to this point, you're told, obey God, fear the Lord. And all of a sudden now, as they're about to enter the promised land, when Moses knows, I'm not going to be able to go with you, you're going to have to pass on a vibrant faith. He starts talking about love. And he says, you know what? You know what you need to do? You know how this needs to work? Love him. Don't just fear him. Don't just obey him. Love him. It's about relationships, and it's about the quality of relationships. Well, he goes on. Um, Verses uh, 7 and following. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away on a journey and when you're lying down and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands as a reminder. Wear them on your forehead. Write them on your uh, posts of your house and on your gates. But if you go back up uh, to verse uh, 6, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands. Or verse 5, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. In that little, in that little phrase we're really seeing that it's about relationship. Here, here's what I know. When, it, when you boil this God stuff down to rules and regulations, and that's all you pass on to the people coming up behind you, you pass on something that's dead. I know this. The stuff I got in high school, the high school Baptist stuff, was all rules and regulations and decrees and commands. It didn't inspire me to have devotion to God. It didn't create in me a desire to want to love him and offer him my whole heart and trust him with everything. It was just formulas, okay? Religion, when we pass that stuff down to our kids, if it's just laws, if, 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 it's, if it's just rules, it's not going to work. Um, and then the seven and eight, repeat them again and again to your children. Uh, talk about them when you're at home. He's, he's saying this isn't just a Sabbath thing. This isn't just a Sunday thing. This is an all-the-time thing. This is in every set of circumstances. Make God and your relationship with him part of everyday life. 
when you're waking up, when you're having dinner, it's just normal. It's just how you live. You live in the life of God. How, how you and I can pass on faith to the next generation is going to be tied to the quality of the relationships that we have um, if it, because it's a heart issue. And I think that in order to pass on a vibrant faith to the next generation, it's going to take church and family working together in a partnership. If you're here today and you're a parent, um, and this is where the rubber hits the road, okay? So I, I've, got, I've, got, I've got some things for you. If you're here today and you're a parent, I know something about you that you tend to doubt about yourself, and that is this. You underestimate your impact. You do. I, I get it. Because when your kids are little and they're a toddler, you can tell them what to do. You can make them what to do. They, they really, you know, they hang on your leg. They hang on your every word. When you walk in the door, it's like, Daddy, Mommy. I mean, and then maybe you get a little bit of that in elementary school, but by the time they're tweens or teens, right, it's gone. It's not, Mommy, Daddy. It's whatever, <laughs> right, okay? And you think on the inside. See, because of that, your tendency is that you think, well, my impact's gone. My influence is gone. No, 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 no. My kids, I, I have some tw- a, a tween and a budding tween in my house. I get the comments, Dad, you're not funny. Is this conversation over? <laughs> it's over when I say it's over. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> okay? But I'm on the other side. I'm 41, and I'm here to tell you that it still matters to me what my parents think of me. It still matters to me whether or not they love me unconditionally. And whether my tweens blow smoke at me or not doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is they're just like me and they're looking for that love and they're looking for that acceptance just like I am. So as a parent, don't underestimate your impact. If you're here today and you're not a parent, uh, maybe some of you are thinking you're 20 and you're like, huh, parent, uh uh-uh, no. Not only am I not going to be a parent, I'm not even going to date because if I date, there's a risk I could end up a parent two years later. No, uh-uh. I have four siblings. Thank you very much. I know what my parents did to me. I'm not doing that to anybody else ever. Uh, it should be outlawed what my parents did. No, stops here now. We draw the line. Okay, I, I get that. Some of you, I know you, you, you've tried and tried and you can't. Some of you, your kids have grown and they're gone and your tendency, see, you underestimate your impact. Just because you don't have kids doesn't mean you don't have impact. When I was in high school, it was my saxophone instructor, Mr. Fisk. He loved God. And at a time when I was trying to sort things through life, he was another voice in addition to my parents that was pointing me to God. You underestimate your impact. When I was in college... I had, I had a professor mentor of mine sit me down and tell me I had been dating Jenny for a while, a few weeks or months or whatever, okay? I know. And he says, so have you kissed her? And I, I'm not big on just public displays of affection, and it's hard to get alone on a Christian college. So we had not kissed, okay? And, and he, he coached me and helped me understand what it was to show love expressively to a woman. I needed to learn how to do that, okay? Again, don't underestimate your impact. 
you've got people who are actually looking at your life and looking at the decisions that you make. They're watching you. Don't underestimate your impact. And if you're here today and you're 14 or 16, same thing. Don't underestimate your impact. I know, your whole life is future. Well, when I move out, well, when I go to college, well, when I get married or I get a job, someday, one day, someday, one day, Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. God can use you right now, right where you are. When I was 11, 12 years old, I know this will be hard to believe, but I was a nerd. No, I know. Say it isn't so, Max. Okay. My cousin, who was 16 at the time, was everything I wasn't. He ran track. He was in basketball. He played football. And he was, his girlfriend was the captain of the cheerleading squad. Lisa. Perky Lisa. They married. They're still married today, okay? All right. Mike, Mike actually took his, this whole God stuff seriously. His faith was real. And... From Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, he kind of helped pull me out of that, and he plunked me down in Loving Baptist Church. And I got to, I got to see some things about church that I hadn't been seeing in early high school. And he coached me on things, okay? Don't underestimate your impact. Over the next several weeks, I want to talk about bringing church and family together in a way that we can impact the people coming up behind us that we can pass on a faith, a vibrant faith, to the people who are coming up behind us. Remember the kids before I stood up here? They're all over. They're in your life. They're the little, you know, they're the one you want to whack at Thanksgiving because they're being too noisy, okay? They're all over, and they're looking, and they're wanting to know, is there a God that I can count on? Is there a God that I can trust with my heart? And if you and I can shine a light, if you and I can show unconditional love, we can show them that, yes, there is a God that you can trust with your heart.